You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So there's a bait-and-switch scam on Airbnb, and here's how it works. You book a place that looks pretty nice and pretty cheap. And then about five minutes before check-in, you get a call about an emergency. It's flooded, the air conditioner's broken, something insane has happened and you don't want to stay here. But luckily, he's there to save the day with a nicer, bigger place. You're going to be disoriented in a new city and just decide to do the easiest thing, which is to trust this person that you don't know. You get it there, and it's just disgusting. But you have to request a refund before check-in. So it's too late at that point to ask for a refund through their policies as written. And this happened to you? This did happen to me, and many other people, evidently. I'm Arielle Dwimross. This is Reset. Today on the show, some Airbnb customers are getting scammed in a big way. Ali Conti is the reporter who uncovered the con and wrote about it for Vice. She got scammed herself in September while on vacation in Chicago. Ali and her friends spent $1,200 to stay at an apartment. But just as they were about to check in, the host told her the place was flooded and suggested that she and her party check in to a substitute that he also managed. It turned out to be pretty dingy. And then he kicked her out after just two days, forcing them to find a hotel at the last minute. And he never gave her a refund. So Ali started to look into him. She found that the same people who scammed her managed Airbnb listings in eight cities across the country. I was able to find about 100 listings that I would say are, are related to this scam. But since I started reporting on this, I've received hundreds and hundreds of emails from people who have had really similar experiences. And this is global. So I think it's actually fairly common. Okay. What were some of the stories that you heard from other people who also got scammed? Actually, remarkably similar about to check into a place, have your luggage in hand. You get a call about an emergency. You know, you have a choice between taking this other place or spending half of your vacation trying to track down alternate lodgings. So people just kind of roll with it and they figure, oh, well, I'll deal with it when I get home, at which point it's too late to get a refund. And then they just kind of give up. Are these scammers making a lot of money off of this? I think so, because they're not just running one property, right? So maybe they have 10 properties in a city and they're working in eight different cities, um, charging, you know, hundreds of dollars a night. So, I mean, that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars, seemingly. Did you ever find out anything about the person behind this scam or the, the organization behind it? 
Sure. I actually thought it was going to be a much bigger organization than it was, and it's essentially two dudes. They ran a like a short-term rental company called Avid Pacific. I went through a bunch of property records, uh, corporation records, and actually found this guy's name. And then I, you know, looked him up on Instagram and all social media and stuff. And he described himself as, you know, a real estate investor operating in all the cities that these properties were in. I uh, felt pretty confident that it was him. Uh, called up the the number associated with his business. And after I explained that I was a reporter working on the story, the website went down, his LinkedIn changed. Uh, He started changing around all the properties and jacking some of them up to be $10,000 a night so that, you know, no one would be booking them. So it was a pretty clear indication of of guilt, I would say. Um, And that's when I was like, oh, this this has got to be the guy. Did you ever talk to him? I talked to somebody who claimed his name was Patrick. The scammer's name was not Patrick. So he said that he just answered phones for the company that he would try to put me in touch with, with the scammers. Um, of course, he wasn't calling them the scammers, but I'm calling them the scammers. Uh, and yeah, he just claimed to be interested in what I was writing and wanting to know more, more so than I think is uh, realistic for somebody who's just like the receptionist at a company. So I can't really say that I talked to the guy, but um, it seems somewhat likely that I talked to the guy. <laughs> You think maybe, maybe that I mean, was him. Yeah, it could be like a, a Donald Trump thing where you just pretend to be your own secretary. That was kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> Do you think that it's only these two guys or are there other people who are also doing this on Airbnb? I mean, I've heard from people who've emailed me saying that oh, this was something that happened to them in, in Asia or in Europe. And I know these guys aren't, they don't have that kind of global reach, right? So this might just be like a common formula that... You know, opportunistic people have have decided works. So you wrote this article. How did Airbnb respond to uh, your reporting? So I emailed them a list of questions on October 3rd that I thought were pretty basic and that they should know the answers to. Like, it doesn't seem like they would need to do much like digging or preparing to answer questions about, you know, how are people verified on Airbnb? That seems like something... Anyone who works there should know the answer to. Apparently not. Um, All these scam profiles were listed as having been verified by government ID. I wanted to know how that's possible. I wanted to know, you know, when people give their phone number, do you check to see if it's a a Google number or, like, actually something that's traceable to a human? That kind of stuff. And I still haven't gotten really any answers. Ali says that after her story was published, the FBI contacted her to investigate. Six days later, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky appeared on stage with New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin. Chesky announced a slew of new measures meant to improve trust on the platform, including changes to the company's refund policy. He also promised that all 7 million listings on Airbnb's platform would be verified by the end of 2020. We will make sure that 100% of hosts and 100% of listings will be reviewed 
by the end of next year with the intention of having 100% of the things on Airbnb being verified. When you say verified, you mean verified by the company, not by a star system of users. It will be essentially a combination of the company and the community. So we're going to use technology, we're going to use guest, we're going to basically get a confidence score, but we're going to make sure that we can stand behind every single listing, every single host, to make sure that every single listing is accurate, the information's accurate, the photos are what you say they are, the addresses are accurate, they meet minimum standards, they meet basic safety protocol, and the host is who they say they are, and you know who that, what that identity is. I'd be reluctant to be too credulous of this. Like, it actually seems really impossible. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's harder to go backwards and try to police stuff and put, like, regulatory measures in place than it would have been to maybe have built that in from the start. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they pull that off, if they pull it off. It's also interesting because presumably you are not the first customer to get in touch with Airbnb and say, hey, I think there's a scam here. But clearly what this shows in terms of Airbnb's response is that it takes an article that goes viral for a a response of this kind, of this nature, to actually take place. Yeah, and as part of my reporting, I interviewed other people who had left bad reviews for for these hosts and, and asked them to send me their correspondence with Airbnb and they said, this is a scam, and nothing changed. So I think it took a really public, you know, gaffe for them to, to realize they had, you know, a, a huge issue on their hands that needed addressing. Did you ever get your money back? I did. You did? You did? After the article came out, yeah. Wow. Yeah, then I asked, do you think it's a, a reasonable, you know, amount of effort to have to exert to write a 6,000-word article in order to get a refund from your company. Like, I think that that's a little unreasonable. Didn't really get a super great answer to that, but apparently that is what it takes. I don't know. We reached out to Airbnb for comment. A spokesperson said that the company had removed all of the profiles associated with Ali's scammer and that if Ali has found additional profiles, it'll remove those too. The scam that Ali discovered is actually just one of the scandals Airbnb is dealing with right now. After the break, how these issues could have been prevented and why they weren't. Mike Isaac, you're a technology reporter at The New York Times, and you just came out with a book about Uber, which is perfect because Uber, like Airbnb, is an app that connects customers to people who own a thing like a car or an apartment that they can share. So, Mike, could you walk us through the last couple of weeks for Airbnb? Yeah, I think it's just been a series of total press PR nightmares for Airbnb the past few weeks. They had this really awful tragedy happened in this community called Orinda in the Northern California where folks had rented out an Airbnb house to basically use it as a party house for Halloween. And then uh, uh, some really awful shootings happened and just, um, you know, people got uh, killed over over what should have been like a fun night. Yeah, I got to say, it's been a, a tough couple weeks for Airbnb. How has the company responded? 
I mean, look, they're doing the standard, really, any corporation thing. We're looking into this. We're taking this seriously. Uh, we guarantee we're going to sort of police our platform a lot better and and make sure our... In response to the Vice story, they said they're going to start, like, you know, verifying each property and, and uh, making sure what is advertised is the correct thing that you're going to get. But, you know, right. I mean, it's it's they're doing what they can, but, you know, I see it as kind of a little bit of lip service. So Brian Chesky, Airbnb CEO, recently said in an interview with Kara Swisher that his company has been slow to implement strong verification policies. We, we think that we're making up for lost time. Mm -hmm. And if I could have done all over again, I would have done a lot more sooner. I think that's one of the lessons here is that, you know, when you grow really fast, you sometimes fall behind. And I think a lesson of all of us is we've been a little either wishful in our thinking or naive in not being imagined enough about how the platform could be used in ways we didn't intend it. We have to use more of imagination and we have to be bolder. I think that's kind of a head fake, honestly. Like part of the whole philosophy of becoming a platform and, you know, Airbnb is, if not the largest, then one of the largest platforms for, you know, home sharing and renting your, your place in the world is expanding as fast as possible. And that means just getting people to sign up and uh, list their houses or apartments or whatever. And I think by design, those verifications and checks in the process are not going to be built in from the beginning just because you have to have what's called liquidity on the platform. You have to give people as much selection as possible. And I think the way that technologists view it is some subsection of our properties are always going to be, you know, false or at least not properly vetted. And, and that's the sort of percentage that our platform is willing to deal with in order to make this, um, to make this work in the long run. So I would argue that it's kind of uh, built by design that way initially. And then, you know, later on, once you get to a big enough scale, then they could say, oh, we're going to start, you know, doing the proper due diligence to make everyone safe and, and happy. So in some ways, these policies that would be designed to keep people safe, to make sure that there's a very low percentage of scams on the platform, mm. they cause friction, right? They stop yeah. people from signing up. They're a barrier to entry. And companies like Airbnb uh, don't really like that. Yeah, 100%. I think that all of these, you know, they're kind of like very interchangeable. You know, what Airbnb might have said, you know, we could have had better vetting policies up front, but that's the same as Uber, which has gone through this process of background checks for drivers and, and making it harder for people to sign up for the platform if they didn't have identity ver verification. But that all comes later once they get to the, the scale that they are. You know, early on, Uber was just kind of taking as many bodies, whether as riders or drivers, on the platform as possible, just as Airbnb was trying to do. And then I think, honestly, there are like software corollaries to this too. You could look at YouTube in its earliest days, all they wanted was just getting as much video content on the platform as possible to grow. And that included, you know, copyrighted material and sort of ripped off or what's called freebooted material from other networks. And, and that's just, I think that's just the nature of being a platform. You have to get big before you can police uh, your content. And then, you know, I would also argue that <laughs> at the same time, it kind of becomes impossible to properly police it once you get that big. So it's kind of a catch-22. 
What is it about that culture that these companies respond only after something bad happens and a reporter writes about it? Is this a Silicon Valley <laughs> thing? Yeah, this is why I take all of these, um, you know, we're very concerned statements with a real grain of salt because everyone who's building these platforms knows exactly what they're doing uh, and sort of by design uh, this is how it was meant to scale. And I mean, I think it's fair to argue that you don't know exactly how the platforms are going to be exploited because, you know, criminals or thieves or whatever are very creative. And, and we're finding new ways that, you know, let's say Facebook is being manipulated every day and, and it's hard to really predict how your platform is going to be used. But that said, I think there's an acceptable amount of risk built into building any of these things in the first place. And it's really about getting getting to scale and doing that as quickly as possible for, before some other competitor beats you to it. I feel like this is a thing that we just understand about these companies, that they want to get as big as possible mm -hmm. and as quickly as possible. Why, though, is it so important for these companies to reach scale? Yeah, I, I mean, in part, um, there's the advantage of what's called a network effect, which means like the bigger you get, the more your platform sort of reinforces its own entrenched, you know, incumbency or you're the dominant force basically exactly yeah and so it's i mean that's facebook facebook greatly benefits from that um more the more people that use it the more people are going to continue using it basically over time and so part of that is maybe the the nature of of the the business itself and then i can't imagine most of the folks in silicon valley wanting to be fine with a small, modest, and sustainable business that isn't growing uh, by 100 or 200 percent every other quarter. I think it's just about changing the world, world domination. And, you know, I, I think for maybe the past 15 or 20 years, that was a lauded approach to how we look at CEOs. And now I think that sort of view is becoming questioned as, as, as tech is in for this reckoning right now. It's interesting because I think that for a lot of people listening to my question, mm. They would just go, well, money, obviously. But clearly, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just money, right? It's more than that. Yeah, I think I'm always, like, hesitant to, to put all of this stuff on money just because a lot of the guys, and again, it's mostly guys that are running these companies, a lot of the guys out here have money, right? They're, they're set for life. Zuckerberg isn't doing it for the money. He has more money than he will ever be able to spend, you know? It's about conquest. It's about history. It's about making one's mark on the world, or if you want to go Steve Jobs, the dent in the universe thing. And, and really, it's about ego, a lot of this, too. And, and so I, I'm hesitant to say, you know, these businesses only care about money because I think, you know, while it's obvious that money is a factor, it's not the thing that really drives them at the end of the day. It's about um, maintaining power and, and beating your competitors so that you, you don't have to worry about being usurped or, or becoming, you know, irrelevant at some point. Right. And in order to do that, you say, I'm okay with, let's say, I'm going to throw a number out here. Sure. 3% of listings being fraudulent and uh, be damned the customers. That, that's, that's, that's just their problem. Yeah. It might be hard to, to hold the platforms to 100% standard of keeping everything pristine or whatever. But that said, like, they also know what they're getting into when they're building as quickly as possible without proper verification. So you have to sort of at least at some point come in and be like, look, you need to forget worrying about growth at all costs and start protecting the people on your platform, especially when it's having real world and potentially life-threatening consequences. Mike Isaac is a tech reporter at The New York Times and the author of Super Pumped, 
the battle for Uber. Mike, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Dimros. If you want to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. And you can reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. If you haven't already, subscribe to Reset on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. Reset comes out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. So check us out on those days. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Sunday with a story about a chatbot that teaches teens about their sexuality. Later, nerds.